Hey, it's Heike, and welcome back after our summer break to the Pursue Your Spark podcast. I hope you had an amazing summer as well. We're starting out our episodes for the fall with a very powerful interview, and you will learn what widowhood might look like for somebody that is gone before you or you might find yourself in the same shoes that you're losing somebody really dear to your heart and how do you deal with the loneliness the caregiving how do you move beyond and find yourself again leading a new life after the person you love passed away I know you'll be blown away by this interview and learn so much about how to deal with grief and find yourself. So let's dive in today's interview. Hi, I'm Heike Yates, a fitness and nutrition coach with over 35 years of experience. I'm on a mission to empower women over 50 to reclaim their health, strength, and vibrancy and step into the best version of themselves during this extraordinary phase of life. You're joining an incredible global community of women who have decided to stop dimming their light and ignite their inner spark instead. I'm thrilled to have you with us. On this podcast, I break down complex fitness, nutrition, and mindset concepts into easy, achievable steps that you can incorporate into your life today. No matter where you are, it's never too late to start. I sit down with some truly amazing people who've gone from tough times to great heights and experts who share tips to tackle your challenges. You'll feel supported knowing you're not alone in your journey. It's like having a personal support team in your corner. Together, we're going to change the conversation around aging, break down barriers and reveal the true power of being over 50. So let's challenge the norms, take action and say, yes, I can. This is the Pursue Your Spark podcast. Well, hello, everybody. I am so delighted to introduce our new guest for today, and it's Debbie Weiss. She turned to writing in 2013 when she lost her partner and high school sweetheart of 32 years and found herself living on her own for the first time. She's a former lawyer. She also is proudest of earning her Master's of Fine Art in Creative Writing in 2020 at the age of 56. She's the author of Available As Is, A Midlife Widow's Search for Love, about creating a new life and finding hope after widowhood. Her writing has been published in the New York Times Modern Love column and Huffington Post, among other publications. Welcome to the show, Debbie. Thank you for having me, Heike. This is awesome. I'm so glad we connected. And sometimes Instagram is just such a wonderful place where you can meet all these really cool people. And I'm so glad that you agreed to come on the show despite having to wait for a while. And here we are. That's awesome. (laughs) Debbie, what are you most passionate about? Well, it's usually writing. For a long time, it was definitely writing. Um, at the moment, I just started yoga teacher training. So right at this moment, it's yoga. 
Oh, very cool. I did not know that. So I know that you love yoga. <clears throat> and uh, so what got you started? Just cause you can? No, you know, honestly, I, I wasn't that into yoga. I did some weight training and such. And um, when my husband passed, I just was looking for things to do. And I did a, did a bunch of different things. And some stuck and some didn't. The writing class stuck. And, and I joined a yoga studio and I discovered flow yoga and I really loved it. Very cool. I, I like it too. It's a nice flow and it's a great workout. Exactly. Yeah. It, and it, it's fun. I, you know, at the time um, when he passed, I was pretty upset. And it, that was all I thought about, obviously, as a new widow. But when I did the flow yoga, I noticed when I, in a cl class, I didn't think that much about my life during the whole class. And at the end, I felt much more relaxed. So I, I found it really helpful that way to cope with grief, actually. Yeah. And that's what we're talking about today is how to deal with grief, how to move on after them. Somebody that you've been with for a long time passes away and all the ins and outs that are attached to that. And what the first question that came to mind when I was preparing for the interview, but you and George, you were high school sweethearts. Uh, this is to me something that's very foreign. I'm from Germany. So high school sweetheart doesn't seem to happen as much in Germany. But so you met him. But what attracted you to him that he's like, oh, yeah, he's kind of cool. Well, let's see. I've known him since I was seven and he was 11. So he was always this real cute little boy with the dark curly hair and the olive skin and big brown eyes. Um, and he was, you know, he was four years older. So he was always interesting and really smart. He was very, very smart. Um, when we started dating, I was a senior in high school and he was a senior majoring in engineering at UC Berkeley. Um, and you know, at the time my high school was pretty bland in, in, in suburbia, but, uh, he was, he was into punk rock and, you know, he knew all these bands and his friends did all these cool things and he was a great dancer. So, you know, he was, he was definitely pretty cool. <laughs> so what's not to like about that, right? right. Bands dancing. I'm like, yeah, I'm all over that. <laughs> And I saw some of the pictures from you guys in your younger years, and he really is super cute with his curly hair. I'm like, I'm like yep, yep. So you guys started dating. You guys got married. And describe your life. So you were married with, with the engineer with punk rock background. So tell us what your relationship was like. Well, at first it was a lot of fun. I was young. I went to um, an undergrad and everything. And then I went, I went to law school. We lasted through that. By then he was working uh, in the South Bay in, in Silicon Valley as an engineer. And I went to law school at UC Davis. And then we got together and we were both fairly driven. I mean, these were the yuppie years. This is the early, you know, late 80s, early 90s. And I was saving, saving up for a house, of course, which is expensive in Northern California. And we were both working pretty hard. Um, we stopped going to concerts as much, but we were very happy. George was really into cooking and we cooked a lot and we stayed home together. And I, I think we were really just pretty cozy for a while. Um, we were younger. So you were your own little units. That's very much right then. Very much. So as you progressed and you did whatever you were doing, and I read that he wasn't, he didn't like to travel a lot. Um, and he's like, no, I'm like, okay, how did you deal with that? Cause I know I've learned about from you that you love traveling. And so what's that okay with you to stay home and 
do what you're doing? Well, you know, I'm a very, very cautious person. Um, Aside from losing my husband, my mom died when I was 10. And I think that made me really cautious. I'm an only child. So I really, you know, part of my life is always keep an eye on my dad. You know, you never know if he might vanish. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I was okay with that. And again, I was pretty, you know, at first I was very driven as a lawyer. Um, I retired at 40. The stress was too much. By then we had our little house. And, you know, I was really happy just kind of being with George for a while. Um, you know, uh, we cooked together. I exercised, I gardened lots of home stuff. He, his work was very intense. So I wanted to be available, you know, when he was available weekends and such. And then, you know, I did start to notice probably, oh, you know, in my late forties that I really wasn't doing very much. And I could tell my life really wasn't terribly interesting, but, you know, he got diagnosed with cancer in 2009. Um, I think I was around 47. And at that point, you know, I just wanted to be with him as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can see that. So what type of cancer did he have? Uh, an, a rare one for men, metastasized male breast. Oh, that is rare. Yeah. Wow. So you guys were together. He started getting cancer. <clears throat> and you were there to be his caretaker at this point? You know, we had a few good years. He didn't, he, he's so, he had such a strong will. He would drive himself to chemo or radiology, uh, radiology. He'd go to work after chemo. He'd go grocery shopping. I mean, aside from losing his hair, you couldn't really tell he had cancer. It was interesting. He just cranked through it all. But by late 2012, mid 2012, it started to win and he lost the ability to walk. And it started to really just, you know, he cut into his body. I mean, he just, that mm-hmm. was, that was, that was the end. Yeah. Now I've had a former, another guest here on the show who was talking about caregiving and we're talking about uh, women that are taking care of their parents. And we've talked about that in that aspect, but how did that feel to you taking care of George as the full-time caregiver? What is that like? It's terrible. Um, Part of the problem is that George was in denial. So he didn't want me to talk to his doctors. He gave me the information and he kept telling me he was doing fine. In his mind, he was recovering. That was his view. I don't know how that happened. He'd always been very protective, but he did his his mind kind of did a number on itself and he thought he was recovering. So he turned down outside services and things. And that made it extraordinarily difficult. And he excluded his parents who, who wanted to help, who would have wanted to help, but he insisted they not know. And eventually uh, his mom figured it out, which made it all the worse. So the, the whole thing was terrible. I mean, it was really terrible. I always think if I'd known what was happening and that, you know, his decline was going to be, a, was, was a moderate amount of time, you know, six months, nine months, I think I could have handled it better. But without that knowledge, I didn't know what was happening. And I didn't feel competent to take care of him as he was declining, declining, declining. And we got some help, but but never enough, you know, because he didn't believe that uh, the state he was in. Mm-hmm. Which is really tough for you because then you, your hands are tied. You want to support him, but you also want us, you want support. You need support for the things that you can do better or even just uh, from what I uh, learned is just having to be home all the time, 
and not being able to go anywhere is really taxing and not being able to exercise or taking care of oneself as a caregiver is really a, a big burden in that in that situation. How did you how did you manage? Tell us more about it. Well, um, you know, he always was sending me out for the day. He would say, go away for the day, go have fun, go to the gym. And I would worry, you know, he's going to fall getting from his wheelchair to the bed or, or the, the toilet or something. So I dealt with it by going away, for, going, leaving the house for short periods of time. I'm pretty much a homebody and doing short things, you know, little things. Uh, but basically, you know, I was kind of going under. I mean, I remember I had really terrible hives and nobody, you know, the doctors couldn't figure out why. They're like, oh, maybe it's menopause, but I know it was stress. Mm-hmm. You know? And he tried to help. He did the best he could. And that was terribly sad watching him trying to help so hard with his own care as as his body was failing. That was, that was really hard. Yeah. And then in 2013, he passed, right? Yes, he did. In April. Yep. So... Once once he passed away, uh, you talked about something that's called the widowhood effect. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? And yeah, tell us what widowhood effect is, because I'd never seen that term before. Oh, I found it online, I believe. And uh, it means that in a lot of situations where the where one spouse has died, the surviving spouse, especially if they've been the caregiver, dies prematurely. Um, and that's because they, they, you know, they're in poor shape and they can't live without their, their, their person. So it, it means to die within a short time after prematurely after losing your spouse. Did you and feel it like particularly that? really happens to caregivers. Did you feel like that? Mm. I did for a little bit. I did for a bit. Um, I'm an ex-lawyer, so. I'm pretty tough in some ways, you know, and I, I lost my mom. So I've, I've been done this. I've done this before, uh, although mm-hmm. it's different when you're 10. So I did for a while. Um, I didn't, but you know, by the time, you know, I threw myself into getting all the paperwork and the estate and the house was crumbling and in some ways. And by the time I'd straightened all that out, I was not happy and I was probably not sane but I also didn't want to die, you know? <laughs> so when, when you're in this grieving process, I know keeping all this, this paperwork and all that in order is a monstrous job in itself. Um, but then there's the, the other side. So you're done with all of this. So what did you do to, to deal with the grief? I mean, uh, what did you do? I mean, there's Debbie and she's like, uh, I'm not by myself. I'm here. What am I going to do now? I'm, I'm, I miss him so much. I've never lived by myself. And here now I live by myself. He's gone. I dealt with all this other business crap. And now what? What did Debbie do? Well, that's a good question. Um, I did some good things and I did some bad things. The bad thing, anyone reads my book, is I got in an inappropriate relationship with a younger guy. Um, who I'd known, who was one of George's caregivers. That wasn't good. Uh, the good thing is I started to look at getting out of the house and meeting people. And, you know, I started by healthy things like walking, yoga, uh, things like that. And from there, trying to do things with other people, like a yoga class. Um, there's a lot of friend, friendly women. 
Um, I lived in a suburban town. My options were limited. I joined a car club. George was a tech guy. I had his old sports car. So, and I joined Rotary. Um, those were not necessarily my interests, but there were meals once a week. There was a Rotary meal. There was a breakfast with the car club and the car club. We drove all over the place. So I had people to be with in evenings where, you know, I put clothes on, went out of the house and communicated with people, a few things like that. And I also, um, again, yoga, I had a personal trainer with group training session and I uh, went, referred, went back to writing. I went back to a writing class and joined a writing group. And that, that really made a huge difference. Now, I read somewhere that there's one of your handles is the hungover widow. So where did the hungover widow come from? Lay it out. We want to know. We want to have the good, the bad, the ugly. Bring it on. <laughs> well, that was kind of ugly. Um, I was blogging. And I wanted a funny name. And, you know, when I was looking at all the widow sites, all these widows were so inspirational. There was a singing widow. There was a fit widow. Uh, there were certainly a lot of charitably oriented widows. And it was like, God, I feel like hell. I mean, I'm, I'm not in any kind of uh, shape to be, you know, effectively changing the world. So I picked hungover with widow because I thought it was honest. Uh, and at the time, you know, my days looked pretty good. I would there was a walk, here was a group activity, here was some kind of paperwork or some kind of administration stuff or writing. But, you know, at the beginning of the first year, the evenings was, was me alone, aside from my inappropriate relationship, drinking bourbon on the floor, uh, listening to George's favorite records, just kind of looking around my house. And it was so quiet. And it was a small suburban home, but it felt cavernous in some ways and unknown and alien. And so I kind of picked hungover for to describe a kind of where I was then and be also to kind of take out this myth of sort of this idealized widow, you know, to kind of deal with, to kind of acknowledge the crazy. Yeah. Cause it's like, when you think about widow, I always, what comes to mind is Italy dressed all in black with a veil and everybody sits around and cries and prays and holds a lot of hands. That's my my idealized version of what widowhood could look like. And that's probably completely far from it. <clears throat> I, I think that's maybe for much, much older women and certainly probably in a different culture. Um, but, you know, there was kind of that. I mean, I was, when George died, I was 49, almost 50. So I think there was an expectation that I would go on to do something more. Um, mm -hmm. I just didn't know what, but it was surprising. The number of people who were like, Oh, well, you're still healthy. You can date again. Are you dating again? Are you, you know, what are you doing now? And it was just like, okay, I'm not there yet. You know, people are easy to, to push these things. And it's like, you know, I need to deal with my grief and it takes time and it takes as for as long as it takes. And it's not, Thing, oh, six months, I'm over my grief. And some people grieve for years. Right. Um, and and it everybody has their own method of dealing with grief and, and dealing with other people with, the, with their grief that they have. And, you know, like you said, you had made some good choices and some not so good choices. And it, to me, it really doesn't matter. You made a choice. You did something. You didn't sit and felt helpless. Maybe you did feel helpless and lonely, but you did you did something. You didn't wait for somebody to come and pick you off the floor, which I think is really hard to do. 
Yeah, I really didn't have anyone to pick me up off the floor. You know, I'm an only child. George was an only child. Uh, at that point, my dad, who I'm really close to, was, and, and my stepmom were both having health problems. They lived nearby, so I could go visit them. But, you know, they weren't up for rallying me to do anything. Um, George and I had been very isolated. I, I didn't have close friends. I wasn't working. We didn't have kids. So, I mean, if I wasn't careful, I could go days and not talk to somebody. So, I mean, I really had to guard my mental health, I think. Mm -hmm. Did you get counseling? I did. Yes, I got grief therapy. And that was super helpful. Yes. Oh, that helped with the inappropriate good. relationship and that helped with the guilt over the, as, with the caregiving. Yes. I yeah. would really recommend so, that. So that's, I think, is a, this is a good assistance for anybody that is dealing with any form of grief to get some professional counseling and not just turn to their friends and, and tell their friends whatever they're sad about and, and what, what's bothering them throughout the grief, but get really a professional to help with answering those questions that I'm sure you had, um, like, especially dealing with loneliness. And then you said um, dating, right? You went on dating sites. I did 14 and months. I, it was 14 months after he, after he passed. I did. Yeah. I, I want to tie in that with the choices you made because there are many women out there that are married and then they may get divorced or they may lose their partner or whatever it is, but suddenly you're by yourself. So I want to talk a little bit about the dating experience. So you go out there and you're like, bam, I'm going to go date. So tell us more about how you did that. Oh, gosh. That, well, I probably actually did it too soon because it was 14 months. It was over a year. So that to me looked reasonable. And I was very lonely. You know, I mean, I was used to being with someone all the time and having dinner alone every night. You know, I really missed having someone say, well, what's your day like? How, how are you? You know? I started to have these visions of, you know, dying alone and the only person who find out, you know, the realtors who come to my house, you know, it was just, so I, yes. I went on day date, um, because it was a smaller site and I figured maybe Tamer, that's a site for Jewish people. And I went on that and started to, you know, meet a few people and kind of started to learn the process of, you know, screening. She's like, gee, why are all these people contacting me who don't even live in the same state, you know? Or, you know, why are all these folks bothering me who don't need anything that I want, you know? That type of thing. Okay. Did you uh, tell on your dating site that you're a widow? Yes, I did. I did. Um, you know, I moved on from JDate fairly quickly. And, and all sites that gave you that opportunity, I always put that I was a widow. Yes. Because I would think, I mean, I've never been on a dating site, but I can imagine if you put on widow that there's the the people that the, the men that come and say, hey, you know, she probably has money. She's a widow. So I'm going to just want to date her because she's maybe she's rich. Did you experience that? No, no, no. Just you know, the first thing, like, line in my profile is I am a former lawyer and I hope that would scare people. <laughs> that's very good it's like okay she's a movie widow but oh boy i gotta watch out for from all the, the lawyer that's funny so when you're on these dating sites <clears throat> um when when other when our listeners listen to you and they're like okay so um what advice would you give them when it comes to dating at our age i mean i'm 62 um we want to go out there what would you tell them to uh, expectations or what, yeah, what they should have or could have 
and what boundaries they need to set when they go on those platforms. I, I think those platforms have probably gotten worse over time from everything that I've heard. You know, I haven't been on a platform like that for five or six years now. I've been in a relationship for five years now. So I haven't been on a site. Um, I would say pick a site that aligns with your interests. Um, it's they're all they're kind of deceptive. You know, I joined something called Fitness Singles. Well, I was fit. Most of the men weren't. I think they wanted a fit woman, you know, senior singles. I, I don't know if that still means that men want women at their own age, uh, that type of thing. J-date, not so great. I mean, a lot of these things were pretty sleazy. So I would say just be very careful. Pick a site that seems respectable. Um, I, I really can't advise on that right now. Uh, put up no very little personal information, but good photographs, a clever profile, not too, not too long. And then really just screen. I mean, really screen. If any, you know, you don't have to answer every message. You don't have to answer anything inappropriate. Use the blocking tool liberally. If you meet somebody, you know, people, there's a big debate is coffee date to eat too lazy. Personally, I like them because you can have that make can make somebody come to you. I think the guy should have a little chivalry. It can be a place you know that's well known, a big well lit parking lot, that type of thing. You get in your car, you drive away. If they call you afterwards and say, Oh my God, I'm in love with you, I want to come to your house. No, 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 no. I've had that happen. You know, mainly just being very cautious. Okay, because it's good advice, because from what I've heard is the 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 photos are not real when you meet those guys they look totally different than the photos they have or like you said they want to meet at your house um so safety definitely something super important um and i'm like i heard coffee dates are the easiest you can get in and out and i've heard of stories from a friend of mine who's also used to date at least and she would sit through these dreadful dinners with these guys who yeah. were dreadful and i said why didn't she get up and she says, well, he was paying for dinner. I was like, really? Yeah, you can, you can just throw in a couple of dollars and say, thanks, I'm done. He's like, well, they wouldn't be polite. I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> so I, it's good to hear from a former active dater at our age. It's okay to do things like that and say, no, this is not where I'm going to go. Be safe. Be aware of who these people are. Yeah, a couple of times guys said, oh, well, you know, it's a long drive for me. Can we please meet for lunch? You know, I mean, I'm driving. I'm like, okay. I usually regretted it. And I really wished I just wanted to get out of there. Um, mm -hmm. Same also, honestly, I'm a little lazy here. But, you know, when I'd like, oh, I'll meet somebody and they're kind of far away. It's like, not really, because, again, it wasn't worth it. But unfortunately, and this is probably a little cynical, until you really know someone, the main thing you want to do until you decide, you've met them and you decide you like them is to minimize the effort and, you know, keep, not waste time. You know, that's, that's what you want to do is not waste time. Um, cause so many oh, people want to text. They don't even live in your state or they're, they're busy, but they want to talk to you. I wasted too much time doing that. You know, I reached a point of, if somebody they're too busy to, to meet the answers, well, okay. You can, well, why don't you contact me when you have more time? You're done. You know, I that type it. of thing. I love it. Cause I have a friend who texts with the potential date hasn't met the date for for days and weeks before actually they met and per meet in person i always keep saying you're wasting your time and she says and he's so cute he's so great and i say you don't know that you're just texting you don't you haven't seen him in front of you is that really that person 
So this is really good when it when it comes to that situation. I totally agree because I made that mistake where I texted with a couple guys who look great. I don't know if they were. And one guy at the end of that was all, oh, well, I've met somebody. Good luck to you. And it was like, wow, you've just been telling me every day, you know, you're, you're pouring your soul or you think I'm so fantastic. And it's like, and now I feel kind of used, you know, wow, emotional labor machine. So yeah, it's, you know, I reached a point where if somebody, you know, I'd message, I was, I'm a little shy, but you know, I'd message a couple of times if it looked good, phone call. And if somebody is like, keeps messaging, I, I just van it, you know, I'd say, thank you. Goodbye. You know, I mean, my goal isn't really to discuss, you know, every Star Wars episode, movie or something and never meet, you know. It's, it's I hear you. Let's switch topic a little bit and dive a little bit into your story and into your book. What is mm -hmm. your goal in sharing your story and actually writing this book? Well, I really wanted, I was writing to other midlife women who were widowed but also who just maybe find themselves alone through divorce at the end of a long relationship where they're really used to being half a couple, as I was for 32 years, where suddenly, you know, you're on your own, you're used to being half of a we, and suddenly you're I, and you're devastated. And I wanted to write to what that feels like. And I really wanted to get into the depth of those emotions, because I found a lot of the writing on that not to deal with how really lonely it feels, how truly devastating, how you have to remake your whole psyche and become another self. And I wanted to speak to that. Um, at a secondary level, um, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I can be up for a challenge. I wanted to see if I could write a good book. There you go. I think that's a great, this is a great challenge. And in 2020, you got your master's of fine art and you went back to school at age 54, you said, and got your degree at 56. Is that right? I did. Yes. I went to St. Mary's College of California. I got my MFA in creative writing and it was great. <laughs> that is awesome. So when you're, when you're going to school, was that during COVID 2020? Yeah. No, you know, it wasn't, it, I started in 2018 and we did pretty well. My final semester was COVID COVID hit, uh, sort of like the winter before my last semester. It's a two year degree. So I had three COVID free semesters. And then the final semester, Pretty early into the semester, maybe partway in, it was strange because things were just happening. Nobody knew what was going on. And we all started out in school. And by the end of it, we were all home and everything was on Zoom. And people didn't know how to do that then. Oh, yeah. The beginning was a little rough. But so you went to school. So you were in. Tell us more about it. So you're in the school and then everybody must have been much younger. You know, not everybody. The MFA is not a very economically oriented degree. I mean, you know, really, oh, how, you know, there, there aren't a ton of, I mean, lucrative opportunities for somebody with an MFA in creative writing. You know, I, I did the, the job thing when I was younger and I, you know, when I was 25, I went to 22, I went to law school. So this actually did have the, the class ahead of me in the MFA program and the year of mine. There were women my age, not men my age, but there were several can think of three or four women my age who were in this program who were kind of fulfilling our dreams to be writers. And then there were some folks in their 30s and some folks in their 20s. So it was fun because everything was different and how their views were, were different. And it wasn't the yuppie era anymore. And it was very different. I mean, it, it was great. Um, I learned pronouns. I learned kind of views about success these days, which were very different from when I was growing up and everybody sort of wanted to have a house and kids and a nice car. 
And now people were, kids were pretty cynical of, about future of traditional kind of future. And they also valued experience a lot more than things or a lot more than an objective accomplishment. And I thought that was really interesting. It's very true. My son is 35 and he and his wife are definitely uh, all about experiences. They like stuff too, but it's primarily as a gift. It's an experience. Uh, they're doing trips because they can go hiking in Austria. They live in Europe. So they, they do a, a hike in Austria because they can, and they've never done this before. It's, oh, this is great with our granddaughter. And so <clears throat> when you look at this, it's, it's the experience that so many of this age group is prioritizing over a house or a super duper car, it seems. And it's, it's, I think it's refreshing to, to be in that environment. It was. It was really refreshing. It was. It was. Good. So awesome. So when you, you got your degree, is this when you started writing your book based on those skills you learned? Well, you know, I was always journaling a bit and I, I was in a writing class starting probably late 2013 and in writing group that was really helped me. So I was writing really short pieces about the people I was meeting. I was blogging about them on my website, the hungover widow. My writing was terrible then. Um, and then later I sent things out for publications. So what helped me is when I really kind of, I think I started writing the book in earnest, probably around 2017 or 2018, I started to think about it and quickly realized I could write pieces, but it wasn't very good. I couldn't structure it. I was having trouble figuring it out. Um, but what I did have were vignettes and contemporaneous writings from those times because I couldn't, I don't know, like remembering all these people and all these experiences and what that was like. So I had notes and that was a huge help for when I started to, to really put it together, probably seriously in 2017. Mm -hmm. Now, the title is quite, quite interesting. Available as is. Yeah. How did you come up with that? Available as is. Well, what I think it made sense um, because us older single people or older folk in general, we're kind of available as is. We're like, you know, a well-seasoned home. Like it's from real estate, right? You know, this property is available as is. We've got, you know, the good parts, the beautiful crown molding, fabulous period details, a wonderful foundation. And then we've got the, the different aspects. Uh, I don't know, maybe the plumbing isn't in such good shape or, you know, for older people getting out of this me bad metaphor. Um, we, we have our own baggage. We have our own issues. Um, a lot of us aren't going to change that radically. So we're, you know, we're available as we are. If you've been wondering how to say goodbye to bloating, constipation, or digestive discomfort, our course, Belly Bliss, How to Combat Bloating and Digestive Issues, is designed just for you. The course dives into understanding the gut, shedding light on why bloating occurs, and how practices like mindful eating and intermittent fasting can make a significant difference. We talk about the role of exercise, hydration, stress, and pre- and probiotics in maintaining gut health. The course is here to help you understand your body better and make choices that will make you feel good inside and out. By the end of our course, you won't just be equipped with the knowledge, but also the confidence to make healthier choices for your gut. 
So why wait? Come along and let's start this feel-good journey together. I'll leave a link in the show notes so that you and your gut can start feeling healthier today. Yeah, because I also I also read that, and I read a little bit about your book uh, through your book. Uh, it's it's said that it's a dark humor tone with tackling some serious themes. Yeah. What what did you? Why did you choose chose to narrow it that way? Well, that's my sense of humor. I mean, I just I, that is I just have a sense of humor. I mean, I I deal with tragedy by seeing the irony or the absurdity. And certainly dating at 50 is absurd. And the people I met were, so many of them were just simply ridiculous. And, you know, a lot of this was like a bad Fellini movie. You know, it just wasn't, I mean, it was so surreal. It was, it was funny. Um, and the death certainly wasn't funny, but there were some aspects to it that were ironic. So I, humor to me was, a, dark humor was how I saw a lot of this. That's my perspective. Uh-huh. Interesting. And uh, I think it's, it's like you said, it's, it's our personality that pours into our books that we write or the, the, yeah. the themes or um, some of the authors that I've interviewed before had books that were quite cheeky and funny and, and people would scratch their head and say, that's weird. And the person I'm thinking of would say, well, it's just me. I'm just that way. And this is how I perceive things. And this is how I would write things. Yeah. Yeah. Did you talk in your book also uh, about your process of forgiveness for yourself to uh, um, losing George or the not being able to be a caretaker as much? I did. Yes. I do talk about that because, you know, when he died, I really had a tremendous amount of guilt. Grief therapy, again, did help. You know, the therapist told me he, he turned down all the help. You did everything, you know, you tried, but I had a, a lot of guilt and I really started to think maybe I didn't deserve that great of a future. And I felt kind of stained. Like I had a secret, you know, I look fine. I seemed very, you know, for having lost a husband a year ago, very put together, uh, poised, but inwardly I felt very stained, you know, because I'd gotten angry at George in some of these situations when we were alone all the time. And he couldn't, in retrospect, I realized, couldn't tell me the truth or tell me what was happening. And I didn't know what was happening. And I was stressed to the gills and this, you know, 24-7. And, um, yeah, I, I do deal with how I kind of forgave him also and forgave myself and kind of started to, to look towards the future. You know, very, very much the yoga, beginner's mind. You know, nobody expects to be in this situation. Mm-hmm. What no are some to... of the steps that, yeah, what are some of the steps that you can share with the listeners that you took that are shareable, that are a part of your book as well, when it comes to that part of uh, self-forgiveness? Well, definitely grief therapy was one. Second, um, honestly, some of it came, and I don't recommend this from being in a very bad relationship that was bad, and I go into my book, and realizing at the end of it, I didn't deserve this. I deserve to have a future. You know, I shouldn't be hanging out with some um, with a drug addict who won't who won't take steps to help himself. I don't I don't have to do that, you know, very much. Um, and then also discovering things I loved and discovering that I was a person in my own right. You know, that was very useful, too, because at first without George, I, I felt like kind of half a person. 
you know, I mean, if you, people who know me would never have thought that, but, um, I, I, you know, I felt like kind of half a person, just this kind of isolated ball of loneliness, very amorphous. And so part of it was just the process of reaching out and doing things and even finding things I didn't like. And in some ways feeling so put down by some of the men I dated that it was like, hell no, that's not right. You know, I don't, I don't deserve that. That's not right. I think that's so enlightening when you realize that you can say, no, thank you. I'm not let this happen. I'm not going through this or I'm not going to be treated that way. Because it wasn't that like, it was not like this in your relationship. So not at all. So suddenly you're, 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 you're putting yourself out there being vulnerable and somebody is like, oh yeah, here we go. I'm going to just take advantage of you in a nutshell. And it takes a lot of guts to stand up for yourself and say, no, thank you. No, I'm not doing that. And walk away from that. That's true. Yeah. That was one thing that really shocked me is that, you know, a lot of the men I met, they were pretty damaged and unpleasant. You know, one guy was obsessed with his exes. Well, they said goodbye and he was suddenly got very angry. And it was like, what did you expect? You know, one fellow had anger, major, you know, anger management problems that came out. And it was like, once again, what do you think? Some chick's going to hang out with you and listen to you whine and berate her just because, you know, you never got proper therapy and, you know, you're wealthy. I I mean, it was really, I, I didn't understand kind of the degree of I don't know what intransigence, intransigence, um, paralysis, intellectual, emotional paralysis these folks had, these men had. I mean, that astonished mm-hmm. me because my girlfriends weren't like that. You know, I knew, I knew single midlife women and they weren't like that. Yeah. Now your subtitle of your book says seeking love, but finding yourself. Can you expand on that? Yeah, that does. The subtitle is a, a midlife widow's search for love, but yeah, seeking. Yeah. Well, it was originally what I wanted when I started uh, dating and everything after my loss a year and I was getting a little bit of my brain back. I didn't really have a brain until three years after my loss, but I thought I wanted a new relationship and that was lonely and um, that I wanted to be in a partner partnered again. But what I didn't realize was that there was too little of me to be partnered that I, I had to, I had to figure out myself on my own and, and figure out a way not to feel like I wanted the widowhood of, that I was going to succumb to the widowhood effect on my own. That was really it. And to find a voice because, you know, for those 32 years, I mean, I was a lawyer and all, but, but George was kind of our collective voice and we did what he wanted and it was wonderful. He took wonderful care of me. But I also had to look at a, a life where I wasn't taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. And it's definitely changes when, because uh, I've never, uh, I always prided myself of living by myself and doing things by myself. That was my thing until I met my first husband. And I had to give a little more and not be as selfish and just my, my, me things and all the things that I want. And uh, just like you, uh, I'm in a, another relationship and uh, it's, it's, it's a definitely a partnership and uh, it's more balanced. Whereas yeah. I've learned as I'm older that not everything goes hike his way. No, we, we have to collectively talk about it, what we both want and what, how we both see our future together and the things we want to do. And you found love again in the last, what, three, five years? It's been, it's just been five years. Five years. 
And I saw them on the pictures. You guys are active. You're out. You're doing stuff. And it just soothes my soul. Yes, I did my research. I was looking all over what Debbie's doing. <laughs> it just soothes my soul with based on, on your book and, and the things that I've learned about you, how happy you are now. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I, it was definitely more of a partnership. I have a say in things. And I also am just a practical person. I mean, in the past, I couldn't even pay our bills. You know, George had the bills on his computer. When he passed, I, I mean, I was figuring all that out. You know, I've, I've kind of lived in a way that, that's much more independent. And I, I pursue my dreams and he pursues some of his dreams. And we, we're together all the time, actually. But you know, we still like being really close, but we're both kind of separate people with separate interests. And, uh, you know, I, I know what to do now. <laughs> Which is fantastic. And when you're thinking about um, other women listening to this episode who are a widow, who are single, who are, let's let's focus on the widowhood, because I think that's a very unique um, position to be in, is what would you tell other women that, they should do or could do when this happens to them. I mean, we never can be prepared because we don't know when it happens. Right. But but what can you do from your own individual perspective, being in a relationship as you find out maybe that person might die or along those lines? What is something that you could help them with? Well, I think in general, it's good to pursue your own dreams throughout your whole life. I mean, I didn't really pursue mine until my husband died. And I, I think, I don't think that should be the catalyst to live the life you want or do the things you want to do. You know, for me, after George died, one of the things that's hard is people are like, well, you don't have kids. You could join an ashram, travel the world. And it's like, I mean, I couldn't navigate an airport then, you know, I got lost going you know, to a new grocery store. And so I think in start starting to be being very gentle with yourself, and very caring of yourself, like you'd feed a friend and not listening to these crazy messages that death seems to be a course in self-improvement. It isn't. Um, after that though, it's to take for me again, I have anxiety. So I'm a different person for, you know, I wasn't going to travel the world for me. It was taking small steps forward, you know, joining a yoga class, staying afterwards to talk to friends, saying yes, when they ask for drinks, having one, inviting a few to lunch you know, then maybe, Oh, there's a yoga retreat, you know, that's a few hours away. Well, I'll go to the yoga retreat. So it's taking small, for me, it was small steps forward and then finding my passions and pursuing those because then at least even if the people weren't perfect, I was doing what I wanted to do. And I found my fellow writers generally to be amazing, wonderful people. And I found a home with them. I found a, you know, I felt very connected there. So very much, I would say to sort of follow your passions and then gently sort of figure out how to do those passions with other people. I think that's a good idea because when you, when you don't know also what you like, it takes time to figure out what's out there. Like you said, the ashram is sort of, sort of like, Ooh, yeah, this is great. I do yoga now. I'm going to ashram. I'm like, is that really what I want to do? Yeah. It wasn't for me. I needed to stay yeah. close to home emotionally and I didn't want to be away from I just that just that that kind of extreme change didn't work for me. I needed smaller steps and then from there a bigger step. You know, yeah. I mean ultimately yeah. I did travel, but again, I'm super cautious. I traveled with the UC alumni group. Um, and some of those trips were good and some a bit lonely. 
but some of them were single women and it was great. So it was just kind of figuring out a few things I wanted to do and then trying to do it in a way that I had folks to talk to and hang out with. Absolutely, I like that. So Debbie's book is available as is A Midlife Widow's Search for Love, available on Amazon and on her website, Debbie Weiss Author. And we'll leave a link in the show notes. And Debbie, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your story about the widowhood, about how you dealt with it, things that hopefully uh, will help some of the listeners that are in the same shoes to get a better handle of what they can do and what they can expect with if this might happen. Well, thank you, Heike. I hope, I hope this helps some folks. Thank you so much for being here. Take care. Me too. Thank you for joining me for today's discussion with our guest, Debbie Weiss. If you'd like to learn more about Debbie Weiss, please check out her social media channels. We provided links to those in the show notes. In addition, check out her book available as is A Midlife Widow's Search for Love on Amazon or her website. If you're learning from and you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's a zero cost way to support us. In addition, please subscribe to the Pursue Your Spark podcast podcast on Apple and Spotify and give the show an up to five star review. If you have any questions, comments, topics, or guests you'd like me to cover on the Pursue Your Spark podcast, please put them in the comment section on YouTube. I read all the comments and I'll respond there. If you're not already following us on social media, media we are at Heike Yates on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and TikTok. And I should mention that on those platforms mentioned, I cover fitness, philosophy, strength training and intermittent fasting topics for women over 50 and 60 and beyond which overlap with the pursue your spark podcast get on the list for my weekly newsletter by grabbing one of my free guides for women over 50 to reclaim your health by going to hikeityates.com thank you for joining me in today's discussion about available us is a midlife widow's search for love with our guest debbie weiss Thanks for being here. Ciao.